0: Welcome to The Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the US account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive.
1: Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, from Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York, and we have a very cool show for you. I've been waiting to get Kristen on for since I started the show, um, so I'm really excited to have Kristen Keffler here, and she's gonna, we're going to be talking about her new book, um, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Um those most of you won't know this, but Kristen and I met over 10 years ago at the very first purposeful planning Institute meeting at the airport in Denver, whatever that <laughs> hotel was that we were at, packed in there and meeting some of my, you know mentors and your mentors. and then just, you know, this whole this whole world of purposeful planning and thinking about creating impactful, meaningful lives for, Helping families to that do that—that's where it was kind of birthed for a lot of the professionals in our industry. So, welcome, Kristen.
2: Thank you, thank you, Michael. I'm super excited to be here. It makes me giggle just thinking about that uh, first purposeful planning. Remember back then it was called the PPC—that was Purposeful Planning Collaboration—is before they became an institute. And um, man, that those airport conference rooms were like
1: that—that that was packed. That was low budget. Just look where we've we've gone now. It's amazing. So for those of you who um, have heard me talk about the Purposeful Planning Institute, go out and check out their website so that you can understand that if you're working with somebody that, you know, is part of that that community, um, you get a flavor for, you know, what they may be bringing to the table for you. Um, Kristen, we have a tradition that when we start, most of the people that have been on the show, they don't. Either one, they you know, they didn't think about joining the family business, or they didn't under, you know, they didn't know they were going to be working with families, businesses, or family wealth when they started their careers or finished college. So we'd love to hear your journey and what were the twists and turns, and how did you end up doing what you're doing today?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's such a it's such a fun question. Um, because in my experience, similar to what you said, most people, if you ask them when they were 20 or 21 or 22, um, what do you think you're going to do? And, and then you look at, you know, if you get to talk to them in their forties, they couldn't have named where they were going to be when they were 22. And and especially in this field, the idea of like how you end up where you end up is, um, yeah, lots of twists and turns. So I'll, I'll give the, I'll give the quick story. Um, so I, I went to college to, um, to go to medical school, actually. That was, I, um, that was what I wanted to be, was a doctor. Um, I won't give the story as to how I ended up pivoting from that, but ultimately I did get a, an undergraduate degree in human biology and chemistry and decided that what I really wanted to do was go and get a master's degree in public health. Um, which is what I, I started doing and ended up combining that, that degree with um, a business degree and got a master's of science in management um, with an emphasis in public health. And so that started me on this journey that I thought was going to be my career, which was I really wanted to integrate the idea of, of population health management. How do we look at the, the health metrics within a, a large data set of people and and help create behavior change programs and systems and culture that that support healthier people. Um, And I did that um, in the corporate environment. So I I used the business aspect of my degree and the public health aspect of my degree um, and started working in um, first at the University of Denver, then at Coors Brain Company, and ended up at um, a hard drive developer in in Boulder County, where I live, um, Colorado, doing health and productivity management. And that was my that was my personal journey, the, or that was my professional journey during that time. At that same period of time, there was this family journey that was happening. Um, and my so my dad, who had been a longtime intrapreneur, so he had worked very often inside companies, inside banks, um, generally building out um Companies within the companies, and his his specialty was um, small equipment leasing. So they, um, I don't even, I yeah, I don't even exactly understand exactly what they did, but I have sort of a high level idea. Um, and and ultimately, what he decided was that he wanted to take what he had learned um, building companies inside companies and build his own company. Um, at that point in time, he, um, it, my I'm the youngest of four. I have three older brothers. Um, and he and my oldest brother had worked together for um, quite a few years. Since my brother was in his teens, um, he had been working in various ways with my dad. Um, so at this point in time that I'm going off to college and my oldest brother's in his mid-20s, uh, my dad decided to go put all of his chips on the table. He remortgaged our house. He he just like went, he got some investor money and he started this company um, <clears throat> that was that was not inside another company, but was his. And ultimately just the right things happened, you know, economic wins at their back at this time, right idea, right, just right, right, right. And they his his vision, I didn't even know things like family businesses. I never really existed at the time. And his vision was not to create a family business. His vision was to take a company public. And so um even though at one point or another, each of my brothers worked in the business, one of them was the janitor of the building that I mean, and one of them was the COO. So there was sort of a a broad range of uh, of hierarchy there. But um, ultimately, what they in, in fairly short order in the life of a business, from the time I left for college until the time I was getting ready to graduate, um, they built the company. They had their first public offering right around the time I was graduating. Um, they ultimately had a second public offering uh, not too long later, I don't know, within a year or so, and then um, and then ended up selling the company. So in this, so I was on this this professional journey, my own individual journey, and at the same time, this my dad was following his dream, and as a result, there were a couple of wealth creating events that that happened in my family. Um, so I spent my 20s on the this this dual path of of my own pursuits. And then being in family meetings, my dad was very thoughtful. My parents were very thoughtful about wanting to educate us. Um, and so we started family meetings pretty early. They were uncomfortable the way family meetings often are at first. Um, and I found that over time I I wanted so badly to understand what was happening. Like, you know, what was an islet? What was a GRAT? What's the, why a GST? What does that mean? And, um, and time and time again, I did not feel like I would go into a meeting being like really committed to trying to understand. And I would come out of a meeting feeling just as exhausted and um, as, and less, and, and no more smart than when, than when I went in. And um, and so ultimately that that piece of trying to really just understand like how to do well as a rising gen, which that term didn't even exist back then, but how to do well as a rising gen in a, a family where there's um, financial resources and some joint assets. And like, how do I even do this? Not just, you know, I would get called down to the uh, estate planning attorney's office to sign documents and I would just go sign them, right? Like, I, I even now today, as my parents are both in their late seventies and early eighties, and we're, we're we're activating parts of their estate as they they both are in their own stages of cognitive decline. Um, I'm experiencing like I'm seeing things where it's like, oh, Kristen, you need to you need to come to the closing on their house because their house was in a in a Q-pert, and you were the trustee, and it's like, what? When did I sign up for that? Um, and and so. Um, I'll, I'll I'll wrap up the story but that was that was really my launching pad into this work was my own desire to try to understand and ultimately what what I found was um a drive that that I I felt like there must be other Rising gen who are trying to figure out how to best be in their families live their own autonomous lives with their own Visions but also learn how to have a healthy relationship with with resources greater than what they are earning on their own and and also how to um how to to be able to learn what you need to learn to be a good steward of assets that that are in the family and um and that led me to the work that I've done with Rising Gen, ultimately to work with um with families of wealth. And then ex- the extension of that was working with enterprising families, which um I just love. I love the, getting to bring in that business skill set of mine and the the governance skill set into this. And where it all started was with, with Rising Gen. And that's where my um my heart and my passion still are
1: talk about that for just a second before we i want to dive into the book and and i think there's some correlations that you'll be able to pull back from on this yeah but what you just talked about i was with a family recently and you know dad had done well the next generation came in and did great like just knocked it out of the park um and you know knocked it out of the park for you know most families and people don't know this but you know 88% of america has a net worth including their house under a million dollars okay so when you you know knock it out of the park and you're you're sitting at 17 18 19 20 million dollars in net worth that's you're in the top quarter yeah top half of 1% of america that's pretty amazing for sure but for a lot of these families you know they don't understand because they did the work They feel like just, we're, you know, we're upper middle class. The the net worth was in the business. And now if there is a event, liquidity event, and even if there's not a liquidity event, when that generation dies, if the family's not coming into the business, you know, that business will get sold and that becomes the liquidity event. What, you know, if you took, let's say you had four kids, and you were able to pass every single dollar, no estate taxes. Everything else just worked, and you got now twenty million dollars. So now each of your kid has five million dollars, at three percent. Right, you're you're giving that kid one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year of income, and and I don't believe and you know the, the vast majority of people, when they do their estate planning work, when they're talking about those things, they just talk about doing the equal piece. Let me just give my money there to my family, but they don't forget, think about what, and you said it perfectly. I was getting more coming in from, right? Talking about a little bit more. How did that, how did that feel? What were, what were some of the other things that were going on for you in, in that, in that time frame?
2: yeah so like what was the impact of 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 family wealth in my life as I was in on the path of of my own or earning my own income and is that sort of the the heart yeah. of the question yeah well, I th- you know one of the things that um I think ultimately what became what what th- thankfully, let me back up um thankfully, my parents had a very they just had a very thoughtful way of making sure that that money didn't that they were they were generous in a lot of what they did right like education for most families like education is is on the table for something they would they would support and they did um, extra life events that like you know I had a brother whose um, parents were moving in with him from they were coming from Spain his uh, uh, parents in law we're moving from spain and my parents helped to pay for redoing their basement so that there was an apartment in the basement for them. they did things like that and we always got the annual gift. and it, so in my 20s that was that was all that i received really in terms of cash was the annual gift. okay. um and you know down payment for a house and lots of things that were like a massive leg up. um one of the things that i think was really um, interesting for me. And I, I, I don't think that my brothers had the same experience, probably one, cause they were older, maybe two, cause they're male. I don't know. Um, but my experience of even those small things like that weren't small, but small on, on the comparison of what some parents give their kids um, created an um, in inequality in my relationships, specifically my primary relationship that I didn't have the tools to deal with. Mm -hmm. So I, so I was married in my twenties, got married in my, when I was 24 and I was divorced by the time I was 27. And while this was not financial inequality, wasn't the only reason looking back, I can see how in many ways it played into our relationship in ways that made it so I did not turn to my husband for to to be an equal decision maker, right? Like as we were buying a house, I turned to my dad. And I can think of of a dozen other instances that I'm like, oh, I bet that, I bet he didn't feel like a full equal partner. And it was habit, right? It was pure habit on my part. Um, And again, that wasn't the only reason, but I think that 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 impacted that relationship it also um i spent a lot of time in my 20s managing the narrative around my peer group depending on who knew me from when and what frame they had around me i would share or not share different things right and so um about kind of either where we had been traveling or the house we had the the second home my family had in the mountains those kinds of things and i think so I don't know if this gets it at, at the heart of your question, but for me, there was this, I, I needed to do the work to figure out what money in general was and wasn't in my life. And then, and then money in its accumulated format, uh, this concept, this abstraction that is wealth, like that was this whole other level of, of sort of, work and integration psychologically speaking that i needed to do um and i i it took it took so many years I, i mean in some ways i still am trying to like understand it all
1: yeah and i think you know it's so important for people just to understand that our relationships and money and how that those those things come together we don't always know what somebody else is feeling or why they're feeling what they're feeling and great time to have some questions. So I think with that in mind, you know, let's dive into the book. Um, the the book is The Myth of the Silver Spoon. And so there are, and I just want to start with the title, yeah. The Myth of the Silver Spoon. Talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. You know, one of the things that um, I you know, I, I shared my story that like where I started was, was coaching work with rising Jen. And my heart is so in that space with those, with those, with the, with, the, with fellow rising Jen and really this, um, the, the idea of the myth of the silver spoon came, um, came out of this, you know, as I continued to look at the situation that. Um, That people who are born into families of significance where there's family enterprise that's an engine for creating um, either an engine for creating wealth or sometimes it's like that, you know, many family businesses are fairly illiquid. So it's not even that there's wealth but that there's prestige and significance within their community and, and opportunities that come from being in that kind of family, and that from the outside. It looks like you should just have it made. So like if you're having a problem, and this will be a little harsh, but the like the the feeling is like if you have a problem, like shut up. Like <laughs> right, I don't want to hear it. Right. We would all any one of us would pick your problem over the, the the daily challenges we have. And and what I what I have really wanted, um, what I wanted the book to do was to to like to point at the idea that we ha- there's a we have a taboo about talking about money in our culture and if we have a taboo about talking about money we definitely don't talk about wealth and i and i define the two things as separate but interrelated in my book um really talking about money is this thing that's like we actually can have a human relationship with like you can transact with money the coffee shop you pay your rent wealth is at the point that that money has accumulated enough to to be a concept, it, then, then it's the, it's wealth. And wealth is like this whole other thing to try to understand. And the myth of the silver spoon is this idea that that just because you're born into a family of significance and prominence and, and wealth means that one, you don't have problems, and two, that your problems are less um, valid than somebody else's problems. And it's not to say, like, I have tried to be very careful, and I hope that I've threaded the needle. It's not to say that this isn't a cry for the poor little rich girl or poor little rich boy. Like, the honestly, the the well-meaning, engaged, rising gen that I work with would absolutely cringe at that idea. But what, what the book is, is, is in part a call for us to have a a honest dialogue about our very unconscious relationship with money and wealth. And I apologize. I can see that the sun is creating like quite the, quite the, um, the shiny on me, on me. I'll figure that out in a minute. Um, But one of the things, so at the, at the, the core of it, it's really about like, how do we, how do we pull back the curtain on, on the, the fact that there really are challenges that that culturally on the whole um continuum of the economic spectrum we we generally have a pretty cluttered relationship with money and we definitely have a tangled perception of wealth and the people who hold it and by acknowledging that and starting to um work with that we can we can actually i think start to really create a lot of bridges and 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 have concentrated, concentrated wealth has incredible potential for positive impact. The more we look at what it is and what it isn't, the more impact I think it can have. And we need to start with the individual. And that individual is the rising gen who this is written for and helping them really, um, uh, really hopefully feel seen and heard that, like, yeah, there are legitimate challenges to growing up in families with significance, with prominence. and That can create some clutter and you can clear that clutter and you can find a a path to a more healthy relationship with money and with wealth. And from there
1: to a life of impact, whatever that looks like for you. Okay. So I think it, it might be helpful. One of the things that you talk about is, you know, the shift that's happening in how we view wealth. And, you know, like you and I met years, many, many years ago, while we were in the middle of some of these changes, but you talk about Wealth 3.0, you know, and I, when when talking about the book. So can, would you mind just kind of shedding, this will be the first time on the show that we talk about, you know, those different levels and, you know, the, for people that don't understand it, when you talk about, you know, right now, you know, Web 1.0 was just having dial up. Web 2.0, yep. this is the easy way to be kind of be thinking about it. Web 2.0 was Twitter and Facebook and Amazon and Google and all these things that were happening, you know, and then Web 3.0 is, you know, the blockchain kind of world. So right. you can see how that progresses in that arena. How What does that progression look like when you're talking about wealth?
2: Yeah, I, um that's a great question. It's one I'm very excited to talk about. Um so th- this work, this original kind of thought thought leadership framework um is really the brainchild of Jim Grubman and Jim and Dennis and their long, long-term um collaboration. And, and Jim first presented this framework of Well 3.0 um at the 2019 Purposeful Planning Institute um conference. And he did a keynote there and it was It was revolutionary in terms of like where we what it invited, the sea change that it um, that he brought forth in our industry that I think we are now starting to really actualize. Um, So what what Jim shared and um, and what then I. I hopefully am able to be additive too as we move into this next this next generation of wealth 3.0. Jim shared this this idea. He said wealth 1.0 was really about it was about the dynastic wealth, right? The Carnegies, the the Rockefellers. It's really about um, in wealth 1.0 families had like one key advisor. That one advisor had one perceived one client in the family, right? It was usually the patriarch. And, um, and back in that time, it was really about wealth, wealth preservation and, and protection. And that was really it. And you didn't talk about money. You didn't, I mean, you didn't share any of these kinds of conversations with family. You certainly didn't talk about the psych, the psychology of money. Um, like that was all just in a bit big black box and the family could just sort of assume their prominence and, move forward with that identity sure and that that really started to shift in the so that was like from you know through the, the 1900s and and into the the early night or yeah probably mid1980s um where for the first time and this was like the emergence of wealth 2.0 um where there were the the there were the uh, industry started to acknowledge things like life planning goals-based investing, right? This idea that you might align your values with with the way that you invest, Um, the the need for multiple kinds of advisors sitting at the table. So it's not just a financial person or the estate person, but it was really a a team of people who understood different facets of, of what a family's needs were, but not necessarily in really coordinated ways yet together. Um, and wealth 2.0 was the first time we actually had the rise of the, the voice of the inheritor. Joni Bronfman did her PhD dissertation on, um, uh, like it was the first real published piece that where where she did interviews with inheritors and talked about, um, about the, like, what is the inheritor's experience? And, and for anybody who knows Joni, she's, um, she's from the Seagram Legacy family and and has grown up with wealth and had clearly a personal journey in that as well, and gave us the gift of her thesis. Out of that came many other incredible books like Thayer Willis's writings, um, Jay Hughes's writings. That Jay Hughes, um, Charlie Collier was probably the first person to really talk about the multiple capitals of a family. So, not just the financial capital, but human capital social capital um family capital of uh, you know like really looking at the multiple capitals Jay Hughes extended that and also really got it into our more um common thinking as advisors and um and and there were huge advances in the time of wealth 2.0 um one of the things that that we think um that it ultimately became problematic about wealth 2.0 is that, There's also an underlying negative narrative, uh, a narrative that like families are going to fail. There's, you know, there's, you can (laughs) try real hard, but the odds are stacked against you. Uh, Our best bet is to protect your family from the wealth. Um, and, and so in that there were, there were a lot of practices that came about that, that. We're probably better than what has happened before, but not good enough to really support individuals and families to thrive over the long haul. And so the call to action in Wealth 3.0 is is the next evolution of the field. It's really to take the best of what was in Wealth 2.0, some of the vernacular, things like rising gen, um, you know, not talking about spouses like outlaws. Um, really moving to the, the idea of a married in and those kinds of things then um, and really intentional onboarding of new family members, whether they're rising gen family members or spouses coming in, really helping them get oriented to the culture of of a family. Um, and so, it, so there are many good things in Wealth 2.0. And then as we move to Wealth 3.0, the question is, how do we pull those good things, let go of the bad data, the data that we've been referring to the about failure rates for families and, and one of the things, uh, and failure rates for family businesses, and really look at up-leveling our research in our field so we know, we, so we have good, strong re- research design and then good data that we can refer to. The, yeah. the, the truth is we don't really know what the failure rate for families is. We're just like... But but we've continued to tout that we do, and we continue to tout that that it's you know seventy percent families are going to fail in those tran in those uh, transitions. Um, so the call on well 3.0 is to up level our research, up level our per- professionalization, and then ultimately from a practice perspective, for us as advisors and for the families we work with to shift to a more positive, inclusive, transparent um methodologies that allow that invite families to the table that prepare them rather than prepare them for the wealth and the the responsibility of being in a family business or even just being the representative of family business in the community even if they don't work for the family business and um preparing them rather than protecting them and
1: so that was That was my soapbox, maybe a little too long, but... No, 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 you're you're absolutely right. And one of the things, so you may not know this, but I struggled with PPI for for a few years because I don't serve families that are worth $250 million. That's, you know, if they they are, you know, that high of the net worth, it's because most of it's in the business. It's not because of, you know, obviously if you get that level, then it's, you know, but that's not most of my clients. My clients are you know, under a hundred million. And I have a whole bunch that are sitting around that million, $2 million mark. And one of the things that I've noticed is the same feelings can still be present all the way through. And that's why, you know, that was my soapbox. And the reason why I wanted to have this voice on the podcast and why I, you know, continue to be a member of PPI, because I believe that it doesn't matter the exact dollar amount that the, if you ask almost anybody, almost anybody, if you get a choice to pass two of three things to your kids, you get to choose your knowledge, your values, or your money, Hmm. regardless of their wealth. If you ask them that question, what two things are the answers that everybody says?
2: Knowledge and values, right? Every time
1: always but then if we step back regardless of net worth regardless of where you're at how much time are we actually investing in the knowledge and the values conversations and that's what you're talking about with wealth 3.0 it's let's let's make the knowledge and the values the forefront and utilize the wealth that we have to multiply that effect, and you may not know this, but I created this the, uh, a model years ago called the Wealth Multiplier, and the whole idea is that most families take their wealth, and they'll they'll take the distributions out of it when they have it, and they'll reinvest into you know assets, yep. right, and it just keeps circling that way. But then there's this time that for the first time, it's usually college and university. Yep. And I'm going to invest in the knowledge base of my heirs. And yep. that is does become a wealth multiplier in the family. Well, those families that then multiply it by, what can we do about the social? What can we do about the values? Yep. What can we do about the relational pieces? And that you know just starts to explode the potential for wealth in the family, defining wealth as, also the knowledge, the values, the social. It doesn't have to always mean dollars. It just means impact in the world.
2: Yeah, Yeah, I love it. I love the idea of what you described with your wealth multiplier model. And I think one of the great invitations for us going forward is what you just named, which is to, to shift from having wealth be the metric for success and instead to find broader metrics and and wealth is the tool yeah right and it doesn't mean wealth can't grow and that wouldn't be amazing but when wealth is truly a tool then as it grows it just creates a bigger platform for for change and impact and that is that that's a that's a shift it's a sea change shift for for people for advisors to think about and for families to think about And I love your question. I think that is like a golden nugget, but like, if you could pick two of the three of these three things, right, knowledge, values, or money, which two would you pick? Like, no one, I I have never asked that question. I'm going to, I will start, but no one is going to say, say money matters more than the other two, right? But you're right. If you looked at a pie chart of how much time do we spend on the wealth versus the knowledge and the values, like- it, you know, it's going to be significant.
0: Yeah.
1: And, in, you know, one of the things that we both have heard the phrase, and that's what you're really working on is, are you spending the time getting the assets ready for the heirs or are you getting the heirs ready for the assets? Yeah. And and to that matter, again, I think that that wealth 3.0, it, and, and if we look at it at a broad sense, we can start to say, assets or wealth. it is all of those other pieces. It's the framework that makes us humans yes. is relations is the social, it's the values, the knowledge and the assets is just the tool, you know the money is just the tool to make those things happen totally. Um, you know and um Scott Bar- <laughs> Scott, Bar- um, huh? Scott oh, come on. Yale Levy, Ryan Ponsford, and Scott oh. Um, hold on. Yep. They, yeah. I, I, yes. I apologize, Scott. I'm going to get the, I'll get the name and we'll put it okay. in. There. But, um, that group was on a podcast earlier and Scott shared a story in which they didn't have, they, they did this philanthropy project with a family that literally did not have excess money. They mm-hmm. They couldn't add to the process. Okay. And so, you know, what they did, yeah, Scott Farnsworth, I had it right. Yeah. Um, and what they did is um they raised a little bit of money. They went and looked for spare change in the in the couch. They door to door asking their neighbors to pull the wealth, you know, to pull the money out of their couch because they were going to donate it. And the impact that that had on the family of doing that, it's just that act of giving and being, you know, knowing that there's more that's going to happen. You don't have to keep it all to yourself. is yeah. Super powerful for them. Yeah. It, it's, it's, I I yeah. apologize. I got, I got, I don't, I, the reason why I make a point of it is because I know what your book is worth is talking about and to your point to all the people that it's intended for you don't they wouldn't want somebody to say poor little rich kid right and so th- i just want to make the point of that all the things that you're talking about in here i i'm positive that it doesn't matter whether you're worth you know, your family's worth 50 million dollars or worth worth 50,000 dollars that if you can if you weave through the different processes and talking about wealth 3.0 it can have a huge impact and begin to multiply you got to start where you're at
2: yep I, I 100% agree and i i would one of the the points that i make in the the introduction of the the book um is really clearly to say like there you know there are I happen to work in a in a space where it's astronomical wealth. That's just the, the, the market that I work in. But this, but that one, that's not where I started my work. And two, um, when when you look at the that who this is applicable to, it's it, it isn't just people who have bees behind their family net worth or you know, many hundreds of millions of dollars. It's like, it's like, you know, upper middle class. It's like when you have more financial resources than you need to cover your basic needs, you are faced with a different kind of question about how how do I want to parent? How do I want to raise my kids in this? Where do I want to create impact in my community? How can I create impact in my community? And we live, we certainly live in a, a nation where, where there is um, a wealth inequality that is, I, I think most people would agree is problematic. Right. And we also live in a very rich nation where there where there's like many, many, many people have more than they need to cover their basic needs. And what is the quest the question that that I think the book really um tees up is when you have more than you need, how do you create impact? And that impact can be one of the solutions to really looking at some of the major ills including wealth inequality, um, that that we face as a as a communal nation
1: great so let's talk about that a little bit you you know i'm reading this book i am the rising generation i'm having kids of my own at this point um what are some of the things you know that you talk about what are some of the tools that you know, you share with people to say, "Here's how we move to the conversation of impact."
2: Yeah. so that's a great question. One of the things that I that um, I outline in the book that I I hope is helpful, right? Well, we'll see. We'll see when it when it hits the market on November twenty second. I, I but I'm hopeful that it is helpful. Is is a framework for thinking about the different kinds of psychological clutter that people who are raised with more resources than they need for basic needs. Um, and in this case, we're really talking about everything from Millionaire Next Door on up. Um, what are the things that, that what's what are the type of, where are the piles of clutter that can get in the way of one self-actualizing um, and and really claiming their own life in their own way, their own voice? Um, so I named four different kinds of clutter. One is money clutter. And the idea of money clutter, and this, and for the sake of this, I'm really talking money, and then its extension into wealth. But it's it's really limiting beliefs around money and wealth, and um, and the kind of money stories that exist inside us that are maybe not helpful, right? And that could be over identifying with, resor- with, with with family resources, under um, identifying with with family resources, or in any way kind of having a um, a sort of more uh innocent relationship with money where it's like I don't know how to budget I don't know about cash flow right just this like I I don't I it's that's just too complex or for whatever reason not really engaging with and taking full responsibility for the role of money in our lives so that's money clutter okay um the second one is identity clutter and this one um this one is false beliefs about who you are and who you need to be because you have a prominent family name that may be a prominent business within the community that may, um, you know, could be the kind of family that is um, giving big donations to the school that you go to, or, you know, it's those kinds of things where it's like trying to to clarify who am I as an individual and how is that separate from the wealth and, and money of my family and my family's name? Like, yep. how do I find my own identity?
1: Yeah. You um, belong to a country club, not because you paid for it, but because mom and dad, you know, are members of the country club. Totally.
2: I, re- I remember working with one um, one family where the school had been, a private private school had been renamed with their family name. And she was like a middle schooler there. And she was like, we were having a family meeting and we were talking about kind of where do these things pop up for you socially? And they're in this third generation. There was everything from, she was one of the young, I think she might've been the youngest in middle school all the way up through 20 somethings. Um, and she, she'd she been very quiet the whole meeting as you can imagine, a 13 year old in a room with three generations and all her cousins being older. And, um, but she, when it came around for her to talk, she said, she said, I'm really proud of my family. I'm really proud of my family name. And it is really strange to go to a school that is named with my family name. Like that That has daily, um, there's daily, there's things I'm trying to navigate because of that. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that's a that's both what you would consider an awesome blessing. What a cool thing. And like when your last name is the same last name as the name on the building that you're going to and everybody knows it, how do you get treated and how much of that is based on who you are as a person and how much of that is based on the last name that that precedes you everywhere you go um so the third the third kind of clutter that i see really consistently is relationship clutter and i i named that in as i was sharing my story where there's a some just unconscious stuff where it, it's not necessarily clear. For a lot of the rising gen I work with, they'll have the question of like, "Well, I can't tell if he, I think he really likes me for me, but, but he, but I'm not sure that's all it." Or, or kids in you know elementary school, middle school, high school who are say, who will say things like, "I know my friends love coming to my house, but is it because?" They love hanging out with me, or because I really have all the coolest stuff and a pool in the backyard, and 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 it's like, especially at at a time when you're developmentally working with in group out group stuff, and who am I and how do I fit in, which is very much the teens and and early twenties trying to also detangle and have your your sort of authenticity meter out for are these people really my friends? And how do I tell is that's, that's complex stuff, right? Like hopefully by the time we're in our thirties and forties and fifties, we have figured out that authenticity meter and we can more quickly, um, identify who, who are real people are and who are not our real people. But, you know, try to think back to what it was like in your teens and twenties and like, it's already a muddled mess of social interconnectivity and, um, And so that, so that relationship clutter, which can then extend into relationships like primary relationships and, and a lack of clarity and a lack of communication and vernacular around, you know, wealth inequality, status inequality. What is it like to, to marry into a family where there's a family enterprise and some, some level of, well, we, we meet for shareholder meetings. We, we have a, you know, you have. You have the opportunity to sit on the board of directors, but what does that mean? All all of that stuff is like part of what can create a lot of relationship clutter. And then um, finally, uh, the the last pile of clutter I typically see is is what I've called contribution clutter, which is really about um, work and impact. And it doesn't have to be paid work, but we are beings that are wired for impact. We are wired to do something in the world and see that what we've done has impact and that feeds the part of us that gets validated for being here for taking up space and when we don't get that validation loop. It can like there's a lot of narratives that can run through our minds around our value as a person our, ma- our mattering right like we, we want to know we matter and um and so work. So removing the financial need to work which. For some families, that is possible. For other families, depending on kind of where they're at in that continuum and how how much of their assets are liquid or illiquid, um, that's not really an option. But for for families where it's removing the human need to work or removing the financial need to work doesn't remove the human need to work. And right. and as as we know that there's there can be some entanglement when there's a family enterprise and some question and duty about well am i going to go work for the, for my family and trying to figure out like is that really what i want is that what my skills are do i feel like i can really shine there um so there's just a lot of clutter that can that can pile up for for rising gen and and family enterprise and significant families
1: i, I love the way that you've just put them in and and named it clutter you know because in and, and all four of those again, I think everybody deals with them, regardless of wealth. We yes, all yes. deal with that stuff, but it gets met with the, what happens is the money or the assets magnify it. Yep. Uh, and, and so like you said, you know, when I was in, in school, I had the same relational problems and, and, you know, figuring out my identity problems, you know, and, and all of those things, but I didn't have to do that in the world of everybody wants to come to my house because you know, we have horses and we have, you know, a giant pool and slides. And it's almost like an amusement park when you come to my house.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: I get that makes an awful lot of sense. Having said that though, I did help my kids, even though we didn't have the kind of money that you're, you know, that we're (laughs) talking about. Um, We put up a rock wall in our basement, a zip line and monkey bars. And, and, and every kid that ever, you know, they wanted all their birthday parties at that house because it was just like that. that
2: Yep. There is some great, there's something nice. My husband and I were just talking about this the other day. There is something nice to be in the house that people want, the kids want to be at because then you know where they're at. And they're so right. Again, this is, that just points out the, the sort of core, um container of this book is this idea that none of it is black and white, that it's like you can't say wealth is a burden. and you can't say wealth is nothing but a blessing. And right? right because it's all this continuum of trying to figure out like, well, where, at the core of it, like what you describe as as your the the experience of having the house that everybody wanted to come to, Knowing you the way I do, I would bet that the reason you guys did that was it was based on a core value of of family and the connectivity that you have. And so that choice is based on a value, not based on something else. It's not like you wanted to like show off to all the neighbors, like what a cool house you have, right? So so ultimately, I think that, that that is part of the detangling around this is like money and wealth. They have a status that we have allowed, we buy into, and it creates a lot of entanglement that that the more we can figure it out, the more that we can actually understand that gray zone and then make decisions based on values, based on who we are, and then that the resources we have, whether they're social resources or financial resources, um, can be used to magnify.
1: Yeah, I love it. Um, I'll share with you, I was recently talking to somebody, you're talking about family values and the impact that we can have on, and I I think it's really important that that we're having the impact on those coming behind us. You know, it's, the, it's the, the opportunity wouldn't be there without those that came before us, but then it's the, how are we impacting and leaving those that are coming behind us? We always wanna leave them in a better position. So the family was going through a process of naming their values and putting all these pieces together. And somebody said, I hope, you know, the, their advisor that they were working with said, I hope you don't mind this, you know, but you guys are like elephants. You're really, really, really loud, but you always wanna to be together. Wow. And they just thought that was the neatest thing to the point so much that they created a little logo of an elephant and started putting it on, on clothing. And one of the kids, you know, went to school and they're like, you know, what's that? And they're like, oh, that's our family logo. Oh, that's awesome. And and what what's in it? So that you know, she she thought she might get you know hassled for it, but the other kid was like, "No, I, our family doesn't have a family logo." And she's like, "Well, you should get one." <laughs> and just and, and again, that family logo, that piece, the old, the you know, used to be a family crest was what are our family's values? Yeah,
2: yeah, that, like that's, that's such a great story because like who. Like who doesn't, who wouldn't that touch their heart to feel like, yeah, I am part of a tribe. Like this is my tribe and it might be messy and it might be loud and it, but like, this is my tribe.
1: I love it. Right. So that came from uh, a gentleman that was shared the story from, uh, he runs a company called Total Family Management um, that just helps people engage in conversations around values and. That's amazing. Yeah. Great resource. Is there you know it, we're coming up on the on on time and I yeah. don't cover enough about the book we we covered so many great things is there you know something about the book another piece in the book where you are like don't miss this this is one of my you know one of your favorite you know one of your golden nuggets that you wanted to talk about yeah I guess what what I would say is um, like every page in
2: this book I actually have an early release copy the book comes out on November twenty second. So um, you can pre-order it. um, And if anybody is interested in actually buying it in bulk, um, one of the things about the publishing industry that I've learned is that authors are contractually obligated to buy some number of books. And so I can sell them to you in bulk um, cheaper than you can get them somewhere else and I will get them out of my basement. So just a a note. But one of the things I guess I'll say is that um, I... I carved my soul out to write this book in a way that I, I hope, I really hope is meaningful to, to not only the rising gen, who is the primary audience I wrote it for, but also to their parents and to their trusted advisors. And so um, I've intentionally designed the content in the book to address all three audiences. So if as, um, Yeah, I guess that's the final thing I would just want to say is that I think that it it is intended not only to be a supportive resource for Rising Gen to name the clutter, clear the clutter, build the, the character traits and skills of exemplar Rising Gen, and then look towards a path of impact, which is really kind of the story arc for the Rising Gen, but there's specific things throughout the book for parents two specific chapters for parents and then references through the book to say like hey this is this is something you can think about to support the growth of this particular character trait or skill. Um so there there's stuff for parents and there's stuff for trusted advisors and my hope is that everybody feels like they have a actionable thing to do in reading the book that they can walk away and say all right that's something I can actually there's a how in there not just a what. Um
1: So I guess that's where I'll I'll end it. I love it. Well, Kristen Keffler, thank you for joining us. The author of the brand new book coming out this month in November, The Myth of the Silver Spoon, Navigating Family Wealth and Creating an Impactful Life. Um, And that'll be available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and all the other places where you can get books, I would imagine, right? And if you're looking for... um, adult books you can contact Kristen
2: right here get them out of my basement I'll give them to you for my cost so my my greatest joy would be one to have those books in the hands of a lot of people and two to not have them taking up a whole corner of my basement
1: and and that uh, I can totally understand (laughs) how that goes Um, This has been amazing. I really appreciate you sharing. We talked about some things that haven't been discussed on the show before. And that's one of the things that's always important to me. So I appreciate you bringing that. For those of you, you know, that are thinking about the book, let me just tell you, based on my experience with Kristen through the years, I have learned so many things from you, you've shared, and you do, you know, I know you poured your heart out into this. And it's, you know, the amount of experiences that you have been through personally, and in your professional working with Rising Gens, there's just going to be a wealth of knowledge inside of there. So please don't even hesitate, grab the book, and um, you will be certainly, you know, glad that you did. So
2: thank you thank you Michael thank you for this time and this conversation as always like it's a joy to talk to you and I'm really delighted that we had our inaugural podcast together I look forward to many more.
1: Perfect. Thank you everybody. This is the Family Biz show. I'm Michael Columbus from with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York and we cannot wait to have you listen to the next episode. Take care everybody.
0: Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show.
1: The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.